Thank you for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Some of the most common injuries that orthopedic surgeons deal with involve damage to the cartilage in the joints. Here to discuss cartilage preservation and restoration is Dr. Todd Battaglia, an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery at Upstate. Welcome, Dr. Battaglia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, let's start by explaining what exactly is cartilage and and what does it do for us? So in simplest terms, cartilage is basically the cushion that that coats the bones at every one of our joints. Um, It does a lot of different things. It it works as a shock absorber. Mm. It actually helps uh, control the friction so that your joint moves smoothly and freely. Uh, And it has some other special properties in terms of keeping the joint lubricated as well. What does it feel like? Is it more like liquidy or more like? Um, it's it's sort of a rubbery substance. It almost feels somewhat like a slippery, hard-boiled egg. I guess. Would be oh, a, okay, that's a good an description. Analogy. So, um, so we're born with it. This is something we're born with. Is do our bodies keep producing it, or is there a limited? Well, that's unfortunately the problem that leads to much of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we do produce it as we grow, and. It has some very limited ability to regrow if we damage it. But for the most part, once you're an adult uh, and your cartilage is fully formed, if there is an injury, there's basically no mechanism that the body can regrow it and fix, uh, fix major injuries to the cartilage. Okay. And, it's, and cartilage is not indestructible. So, and that's what a large part of your practice is. Tell me about some of the common ways that you, your patients present with damage to their cartilage. Well, by far the most common method or or type of cartilage damage we see is simply going to be wear and tear or what we in general Mm. terms call call arthritis. So Um, by age mostly? By age there's probably a genetic component. Uh, It's very controversial but activity may play a role in terms of what types of activities and you know how much impact activity you do. Uh, Body weight also plays a role certainly. Mm. Smoking as as it is bad for everything else. It's also bad for your cartilage, and smokers oh. tend to have more arthritis. Um, but my practice is particularly concerned with sports medicine and younger people with cartilage injuries. And so those types of patients have uh, typically more of a traumatic issue, that they had a slip or a fall or a twist, and they've injured their cartilage in a more direct way than and, just and wear a And a sudden tear. thing. So it just, okay, all right. Well, um, what sorts of symptoms do do people get when they have a sudden like injury like that how would you know so other than the actual history of saying I slipped or twisted and and felt something the symptoms are very similar uh, as most joint problems there tends to be swelling there's usually pain sometimes focal to one point but oftentimes just a, a more diffuse or broad achiness in the joint and a lot of times there will be what we call mechanical symptoms meaning a click or a catch or even a locking oh. of, the, of the joint okay well, how do you know it's um, cartilage and not bone? You really can't tell immediately. Most of these things will need some sort of workup, sometimes as basic as an x-ray and a physical examination. But for a lot of cartilage injuries, specifically uh, more advanced tests, specifically an MRI, are needed. Oh, and then you can tell from that what's... Okay. Well, based on that, then, um, once you know that there is a cartilage damage of some sort, what are what has been the common treatment? Well, up until... You know, a decade or two ago, we really didn't have any way to regrow or regenerate cartilage. So most people were treated with simple management of the symptoms, meaning ice, bracing, anti-inflammatory medications. Um, 
and then if the cartilage damage was severe enough and the patient was old enough, we would replace the cartilage with metal and plastic, which is what a joint a joint replacement. replacement? Is. Okay. Correct. Okay. And are we talking about for knees, or are we talking about elbows and shoulders and all joints? Well, joint replacements started out with hips and knees primarily, uh, but now shoulder replacements are fairly common, and there are actually replacements for almost any joint you can think of. There are elbow replacements, there are wrist replacements, there are ankle replacements. They're not performed nearly as commonly as hip and knee replacements are, um, but they're out there. Okay. And the joint replacements, typically they're for older patients and they work well in general or they do work well but they have some downsides Um, you know in all fairness joint replacements are in general very successful surgeries the great majority of people who have them are are happy they did it and would do it again Uh, but they have a finite lifespan meaning they wear out over time so the younger you are when you get a joint replacement the more likely you may wear that out and need it redone um that's not only a function of age, but the younger you are, the more active you tend to be, which would also increase the wear and tear on that joint. Um, and there are side effects. Jo- joint replacements are big surgeries, and if you get a complication like an infection or some of the other more serious mm-hmm. things that can happen, uh, it can truly be life-altering. But they do last uh, decades, typically? or our, our technology is always evolving, and so the data we have now is really based on the joint replacements we did a decade or two ago. Uh, but certainly uh, a well-performed joint replacement, we would tell people you should expect at least a couple decades out oh, of this thing. Good. Okay. All right. Well, this is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Amber Smith talking with orthopedic surgeon Todd Battaglia about cartilage preservation and restoration. So I want to switch and talk a little bit more about the younger people or the athletes typically um, that have a joint cartilage injury. Um, so how common is a cartilage injury like with, uh, you hear about people having ACL or anterior cruciate ligament tears or dislocated kneecaps. Do those always come with cartilage damage too? or They do not always, uh, but very frequently. In fact, much more frequently than, than many doctors appreciate. Now, it's not saying all of those need treatment. In fact, many of them don't need treatment. But from a purely statistical standpoint, if you tear your ACL, there's about a 25 to 35% chance that you've also done some damage to the surface cartilage in the knee. And if you've dislocated your patella or your kneecap, it's greater than 90% that you've likely done some sort of cartilage damage. So you, as the surgeon, have to repair the, whatever, the the break or the injury, plus also the cartilage has to be a concern. If it is serious enough, then that would require additional treatment to just the primary ACL or kneecap issue. Yes, ma'am. So up until relatively recently, many of these young people had little choice, really, but to live with kind of the pain. But over the past 10 or 15 years, um, tell us about, there's been some developments and some new technologies. So um, tell us about those. True. In basic terms, we've basically uh, been able to come up with ways to either stimulate the growth of new cartilage to heal some of these lesions or to move or transplant cartilage from other sources to replace some of these injured areas. And those transplants or transfers can come both from the patient themselves or from a donor of cadaver cartilage. Wow. So you're offering that here. You have the ability to do this, the transfers, the transplants, and the the regrowth? We do. We do all of this. So how do you choose which of these methods is most appropriate for which patient? 
It's a very complicated question, and okay. every situation is, is an individualized decision. But in, in the most general factors that it comes down to, probably the most important is going to be the size of the cartilage damage because these different techniques um, work better in some cases and not so well in others depending on how much area you have to regrow or transplant. So that's probably the number one factor. Um, but other factors include where it is in the knee. Certain aspects of the knee are more accessible for some of these than for other techniques. Um, the demands of the patient, the age of the patient, all these kind of things play a role, as does what the patient is willing to go through. Some of these surgeries have relatively long recoveries and some are somewhat shorter. Oh. And that all has to be spelled out and discussed with the patient ahead of time. Wow. Well, walk me through how this is done. Is it a one-time surgery? Depending, oh, I mean, I, I know it's going to vary patient by patient, but let's take kind of a run-of-the-mill average kind of knee damage. So if we were going to talk about this in terms of the general types of things we can do, um, in terms of a transfer or a transplant of cartilage, meaning moving a plug of cartilage from one area or from a cadaver into an area of damaged cartilage, that's a one-time surgery. It's typically performed as an outpatient, no overnight really? uh, stay in the hospital. Okay. Um, and that usually will require non-weight-bearing to let that new cartilage heal in for a period of six weeks or so, followed by some activity restriction for anywhere up to a few months to six months before they can really get back to sports. There are some bigger surgeries we do, which actually involve trying to regrow the cartilage. And there's a number of different techniques for that. Uh, in one case, you can actually transplant finely minced juvenile cartilage cells into a cartilage defect. In a different case, you can take a biopsy of the patient's own cartilage and send it off to a lab where they will filter out the cartilage cells and then send you back uh, a much bigger sample of those to be reimplanted wow. into the knee. In that case, that's a two-step surgery where you have to do the biopsy first, and then a few months later you reimplant the cartilage. Um, and there are some other newer techniques where we try to stimulate the patient's own cartilage to grow by by placing basically some pastes with some different growth factors huh. and things into the defect. Um, and that can be a one-time surgery. But those where we're sort of relying on new cartilage to grow, uh, those tend to be a little bit more drawn out. Those are usually anywhere from 6 to 12 months before that patient is really back to oh, full activity. Wow. Okay. And so really they have to decide or help you. You have to consider what they've got else going on. And Correct. Wow. Interesting. Well, um, are, is anyone a candidate for these types of techniques, or are there some people that would not be candidates? There are. Again, it comes down to an assessment of the individual patient and their individual uh, situation. But in general, the best candidates for these types of surgeries are younger people. Of course, the question is going to be what is younger. And in, in general, that probably is the 40 to 50 or younger oh, age okay. group. Um, but particularly the most important thing that makes someone a candidate is if they have a focal injury to the cartilage. And what I mean by that is, in general, the knee or the joint is in overall good shape and they have one specific injury where they've taken a piece or a divot to some of the cartilage. When you get into the stage where the cartilage d is diffusely worn down or there's a lot of widespread wear and tear, these techniques aren't it's really not, useful okay. and that puts someone more into the joint replacement category. Okay. Well, um, do we know yet how reliable these methods are? Has it been around long enough to kind of measure? It has. In, in the medical world, we kind of think of things in short-term success rates, which is on the order of one to two years, medium-term success rate, which is probably five to ten years or so. 
and the long-term success rates, which gets measured in, in decades or more. We don't have enough data to talk about long-term success rates, but the medium-term results so far are quite promising. You know, wow. Most of these techniques, depending on what you're talking about, have longevity probably in the 80% or better range. And that means getting back to their normal activity or their sport or getting back to normal activity and not needing any additional surgery. Wow. Okay. Um, are there any risks to, to this? There are, um, as with any surgery, there are basic risks of going under anesthesia and risks of infection and blood clots and those kind of things. Um, the main risks with these turn out really to be the success rates of the surgery itself. Obviously Mm -hmm. if it doesn't heal or the cartilage doesn't take, uh, they're still going to have an issue with that knee and maybe looking at further surgery. Okay. Okay. Well, um, looking even beyond this, what else do you see happening or developing in this field? Probably the next thing on the horizon is going to be really focused on the biological side of healing cartilage. And people are already working on this, but talking about things like growth factors and stem cells and other things that create a more favorable environment for cartilage to heal. I think we're pretty good right now at sort of the basic um, strategies to get new cartilage into these areas, but creating a more favorable environment to increase the success rates, to increase the quality of the new cartilage that grows. I think that's the new horizon. Wow. Well, that's exciting. Sounds really neat. Thank you so much for coming. I want to uh, thank Dr. Todd Battaglia, an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery, uh, for speaking about cartilage repair and preservation. This has been Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air.